I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Today's guest is someone very respected in the industry, but who hasn't spent much time in the limelight. Until recently, that is. Ariel Rees CEO Ryan Mather now represents part of the significant new capital that has come into the sector since the global market turn accelerated in the last couple of years. Ariel Rhee is a specialist looking to be an expert and add value wherever it decides to deploy its capital. It's also highly diverse, with divisions ensuring clean energy, cyber and professional lines, as well as operating in the more traditional property cat arena. What seems to set it apart is a willingness to move towards risks that others are running away from. This obviously takes an open mind and the confidence to invest in the sort of expertise that will give the firm the comfort to issue terms where others won't. That all points to a business and a leadership team that is very much out of the ordinary. I think this podcast will give you a good idea of how Ariel Rees sets about this difficult task and help you start to get to know someone whose industry profile is likely to rise significantly in coming years. Ryan is clearly very smart, but he's far from being dry or academic. He's very amiable and refreshing company, and I can highly recommend a listen. Enjoy the podcast. So Ryan, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you very much, Mark, and uh, thank you for having me today. And wonderful to be in London in the beautiful weather, which I'm not always sure that we can say. Spring has definitely sprung, and it, maybe it has for Ariel Rhee as well. You've been under this new ownership regime for a significant period. So could you tell us sort of what are the most notable strategic changes and cultural changes that you've made in that time? Sure. We went private, is the way we put it, on the 24th of November 2020. And we've been working to take advantage of our situation, really, over the course of the last 18 months or so. So being private obviously allows you to work without being in the public gaze so much, make all the changes we want to change. And some of them are reasonably significant from having a slightly different business model, more focused on third-party capital. But having a board of directors under the leadership of Jim Stannard, who, who just understands risk and especially catastrophe risk so well, gives you so many advantages, allows you to plan with so much confidence. And then we've built the company. When we started, we had 65 people. We're now just under 100. We've all but built a managing agency. We're still waiting for PRA confirmation of that, which should be coming in the next few months. And we've just built a wonderful team of super engaged people who are all very bright, who want to see how far Ariel can go in the next phase of its existence. You mentioned, Jim, it was episode 57, one of my favorite episodes, because it was someone who'd been away from the market because of his involvement with Ariel Rhee. I was able to get him back in and get him talking. And obviously, Jim is really associated with that. You've mentioned about third-party capital, obviously, he's probably at Renry was the progenitor of, of that model, which has obviously developed into a whole new strand of the market, a whole segment of the market. So should we expect to see a bit more of you managing third-party capital, a lot more of, of other people's money rather than your own, but obviously alongside your own? Absolutely. We've set ourselves up and we say that we want to be the premier manager of reinsurance risk. And that will involve our own alignment capital, but mostly third-party capital who have the safety of knowledge that there is alignment there and we are taking personal risk as well. So we're very much in the same boat. But our ambition is only limited by what the market can offer us. And we want to be much bigger than we are today. And that growth is certainly going to come from third-party capital. And obviously within that, you can deploy that capital into many strands of the market. What do you want to be known for? Because obviously, you could just be known for property cat, of course. And of course, you're bound to play in that marketplace, or almost certainly. What would you like 
a broker walking around uh, these streets or, or Front Street in Bermuda to be thinking about when they think of you? We have a few different people that we need to think about when the public perception is concerned. It's, it's not just the brokers, but also the clients behind the brokers, obviously our capital providers and our regulators. Most importantly, we want to be thought of as being profitable because without profitability, there is no sustainability there. So that's fundamental. But really, we want to be considered a thoughtful, consistent, predictable partner who does the simple things well and always has capacity, always has a yes attitude. There shouldn't be any risk that we don't take. It should be, yes, we can take that risk, but here are the terms and conditions around it. And that's how you create a market. And that's how you create more liquidity and create a reputation, quite frankly. And obviously, since the management change and the ownership change, have you noticed a difference in the way that people are perceiving you? Are you getting a different showing, a better showing of business? Again, you have to look at all the different stakeholders individually. From a regulatory perspective, we've really embraced Lloyd's. So our relationship with Lloyd's is better than it has been. So that's great. And without the regulator being on side, you don't have any ability to grow. So that's an important thing. Our capital providers, we're building up rapport with them. We want to make sure we communicate effectively with them because we're in a surprise business, especially with CAT. We want to make sure that they know what we are doing and what we're not doing so, so that when something happens, they know whether they should be concerned or not. And then as far as clients and brokers are concerned, we want to be seen to be being on the front foot. So putting more capacity to work, growing, becoming more influential, either in individual placements or the market collectively, so that we are not just a capacity provider, but also a thought leader. Are you sort of cooking up solutions and going out and sell them to the broker rather than waiting for the broker to come to you to solve problems? Absolutely. Look, the, the market's in a place where it feels like it's really quite changeable at the moment and a bit of a changing of the guard. And we want to be part of the new guard, the one that comes to the market with solutions, with new capacity, with new ideas, et cetera. And a couple of lines of business that I'll talk about, you know, clean energy is one of those where we are in a part of the clean energy market that didn't exist before. And very often we don't compete with anybody apart from self-insurance. And the way we did that was by building our own product, building the models around the product and the wording around it, and then going and selling it, creating something brand new. So if we can repeat that, sort of entrepreneurial spirit, then I think we'll be in good stead. I was researching ahead of our chat. That struck me as being particularly interesting. I've probably only seen some very large global reinsurers getting involved in that kind of thing. This is sort of where you're insuring some of the, effectively, the efficacy of some of these technologies, the green energy, clean energy technologies. And these are likely going to be quite long tail type risks. So it's the sort of things like efficacy of solar power, how did you even begin to do that? Because obviously, you know, that broker in the street would think of you as a property cat specialist, and rightly so. How did you make that journey from here to there to something that's potentially very long tail, completely different nature of risk, something that could kill you quite slowly over a 20-year period, for example, rather than surprise, there's been a hurricane? Absolutely. Look, the first thing, we were very fortunate to find a team of people that really knew their business inside and out. They've been doing this for a long time. And we didn't want to do precisely what they were doing before. So we took the product, we turned it around, we remodeled it, we built new wordings, and then we went and knocked on doors. So it was really as basic as that and fundamental as that. And initially, we didn't really get any traction, but sooner or later we did. And people, we started learning what worked for people, etc. So what we have is a product that is name perils that sits behind financing. So we cover certain things that could go bump in the night. They rarely do, actually, because of the way we structure things. The product is built such that the most likely outcome is no losses. And in fact, those guys have been doing this for about 12 years. And in fact, they've never incurred a loss. 
which works for us quite well. So along the side of the thing where you're giving comfort to the financier, to the banker who's going to lend money to X project that's about to be built somewhere, and you're going to give them enough comfort to lend more than they would otherwise, or etc. Uh, absolutely. I either lend more or lend it slightly cheaper. So it works for, for all three parties. And therefore, this is something for good, really, isn't it? Because you're enabling new things to be built. And then, of course, presumably, they'll come to you again for the next project. Absolutely. And also, you know, when we started doing this five years ago, we weren't quite in the ESG world that we're in now. And obviously, hydrocarbons weren't quite as evil as they're perceived to be now. So we've really got a big tailwind in the clean energy area, which is obviously one of the most exciting things that we do. I mean, how much of a percentage of your business might that be when your happiest projections in five years' time or 10 years' time, do you think? We'll wait to see. We, we sell one product at a time. We never try and plan at a macro level top down. We just do risk by risk by risk, and we keep writing them while they still look good. Because presumably, competition is going to come given the cultural changes happening, but it probably won't come straight away. Sure. We always talk about the three I's, the, the innovators, the imitators, and then the idiots. We're, we're still <laughs> very much at the innovation stage. And there aren't many people that have tried to copy us because it, it's not an easy product. It does take a deep understanding. It does take a long term. No, no, no. I mean, I, I would slightly terrify me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. If everyone's terrified, then we'll, we'll continue to have a monopoly. Well, that's, you, that's great. Because particularly for some of these projects, 15, 20 years, you could realize in year three, you've got it wrong. And then it's just compound and kill you slowly over that long period and think, oh dear, I really wish I got it right first time. You won't be surprised to hear that we're protected from that sort of eventuality. Going back into the real world, that bread and butter world, you've had a 20% preemption. So obviously you must be getting on pretty well with Lloyd's. As I say, from analysis of all the different quartiles, you're in the right quadrants, I think. Out of that 20% preemption, what percentage of that should we think of that as being rate and how much of that's just exposure growth of you selling more product? Some things aren't always quite what they seem. In fact, that 20% preemption, in fact, we've had a further preemption since then. Right. So you're absolutely right. The hard numbers, we had a 21% preemption year on year. But what that fails to take into account, the fact that we actually merged Syndicate 6133 into Syndicate 1910. So that's one part. And then separately, we've actually done a further preemption. So the numbers will look quite different. But we're still effectively in our second year, and we still don't know precisely what we can do in any one year. So we've been back and forth with Lloyds, making sure that we communicate frequently and clearly. And they have been very, very good at letting us, within reason, be flexible around our SPF, which most more mature companies wouldn't get. Okay, so back to the question, I suppose just the core of that question is, within that growth, how much of it is rate and how much of it is do you do more? Yeah, so I'll answer the question in a minute. But between where we were at 1-1 last year and where we'll end up at 1231 this year, I think we'll see nearly double. That's sort of the rate of growth that we'll see. Of that, there will be a significant amount of growth, but also rate as well. So we think that our rate's running at sort of 10 plus percent, depending. That was the last number I saw. I think it'll probably get better as we run into the six and seven one renewals, obviously driven by Florida, which is obviously in slight distress at the moment. Many of you might have heard of the name Anaplan, but do you know how it's being used in our industry? I'm going to ask Connor Donahoe and Dan Ellis some quick-fire questions. Connor, what is Anaplan? Very simply, Mark, Anaplan is a best-in-class cloud-based planning and modelling platform that just so happens to be used by the insurance sector very extensively. And what are we doing when we're, we're saying modelling, we're bringing everything together? Is this going to bring all the different 
parts of the business together that generally sit in silos at the moment. Exactly. What we're trying to do is really break down those barriers between different parts of a business. So, you know, we want finance talking to actuarial teams, talking to HR teams, and give them an environment that can really bring them all together and let them access their data all in one place. So we're in a business that often gets reporting demands upon it really quickly. Can Anaplan help with that? Say, for example, we had COVID and suddenly the finance department will have Mm. to start reporting specific COVID-related stuff. No, exactly that point. It's not only the speed at which you can produce the outputs of the report, but that also allows finance teams understand what's driving the numbers. So what we frequently hear from our clients is that with Anaplan, they don't spend time just preparing and producing the numbers, but they have actually time back now to analyse and understand the drivers. So if suddenly the price of a certain class goes up 40%, you can start planning because, of course, you may want to write a lot more than 40% more of that business because now it's very profitable. But of course, then you have to bring in all the HR and all the other stuff that goes with it. And also the timing of that income that might come in in the future. Exactly. You've got to be able to respond to these real world changes and you've got to do it quickly while putting everyone together. And this comes back to this idea of having one area, one place where all of your different people within the organization can all access the same shared data and use it all together. And because it's in the cloud, it's easily scalable and everyone can access it. And that's how it works. This data exists in organizations today. It just so happens to sit within multiple different spreadsheets that are sitting on people's desktops, sitting in emails, sitting in chats on text messages. The data exists and a plan brings that together and allows everyone to access it. Thanks very much for explaining that. How do we get in touch with you? Very easily. Best way is probably to connect on LinkedIn or you can check out anaplan.com. But to connect on LinkedIn, just search for Connor Donahue Anaplan. Or Daniel Ellis. And all the links are going to be in the notes. And thanks very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Talking about Florida, this time of year, time we usually do talk about it more in earnest. We've had a big build-up, probably a bigger build-up than we've had for a long time. How's it going in terms of being offered out there and things are moving? What's, what's it looking like? Because... You know, certainly it had been built up by reinsurers a little bit more that reinsurers were going to be tougher than usual and that they weren't going to accept, you know, that we're going to have to take into account climate change, for example, and other things that hadn't tried to push before that reinsurers were going to push harder. Are they pushing? And is your push being successful or is it being pushed back? My strong suspicion is that it'll run over this year for a whole bunch of reasons, but not least because the Florida legislature is having a special session between the 23rd and the 27th. And that might change the whole dynamic again. So it's one of those situations where we have a plan, obviously, but we also have a plan B, C, D, and E for all the different eventualities that we can foresee. But what we are doing, you know, we are cognizant that we have clients that need terms and brokers that need to do their jobs. So we are putting out quotes, we are putting out capacity, and we are trying to be at the forefront of leading the market. You know, we still don't have as material capacity as many, but we do want to make sure that we're playing our part in making that market. And are you a leader in that market often? Uh, do you see yourself as a leader, even if you haven't got the biggest line? Yeah, I think we'll be seen more and more as a leader this year. There are a lot of people running away from the risk. It's not been an easy risk to take, as we know, because you've had the possible effects of climate change, certainly inflation in all sorts of different forms, and, and notably in Florida, social inflation. So we have had to make sure that our models are built in a certain way that give us confidence that we are going to make money over the long run. So we have that confidence and we use those models to spend out the prices that we think are going to give our capital providers the returns they require. And if not, you do walk away. Absolutely. I said before that we look at deals one at a time. We build up a portfolio that way. We don't have a target to hit in Florida. We will try and write as much business that makes sense for our capital. So far, it seems okay. We, we think the price will go up pretty materially year on year. So we're very happy. 
you'd alluded to reinsurance protection when we were talking about that clean energy product. Obviously, we've had a pretty hard retro market. What's your attitude to retro? Does it affect your planning in any way if you know that your retro is going to be a lot more expensive? Are you anxious to pass that on? Or does it drive you into alternative strategies, uh, given that you're already handling third-party capital anyway? So retro and other capital forms are a fundamental part of Ariel's life. And you write retro as well. We write very little retro. In fact, we write no US, no peak zone retro. So we're very much a buyer. And we have long-term partners, retro. So they've listened to us and most of them have come to the party and we bought products that we think are good both ways, a good trade. We've also, as you would have seen, played in the cat bond market. We issued two cat bonds in the last 12 months. And that's also part of that strategy as well. The cat bond market tends to like taking more taily risk and it's very efficient. And and also it gives you long-term deals, three-year deals. So that works really well. So the retro market certainly has hardened, tightened up, but we were very happy with what we saw and we'll continue to play in that market for a long time to come yet. And yes, that overall attitude to ILS, we should expect given, let's say, the ownership change, cultural change, that you're going to be much more of a supporter as a sponsor of that market. Is it likely to always be part of your mix now going forward? In all sorts of different ways. We buy retrocessional cover from the ILS market. We issue cap bonds, which is sort of in the ILS market. We have ILS players as part of our capital stack as well, capital partners. Yep. So ILS to us is fundamental. It's right in the, especially the it's cap just market. Capital, right? It's just dollars of capital, just in a, in a slightly different form. The the bit that's going to be fascinating to us, we're pushing on cyber at the moment, and we see cyber as a very similar situation to clean energy. It's a product that isn't quite right yet on the reinsurance side, and we think it's going to change over time, and we want to be at the forefront of that change, and we want to be helping the ILS market to access the cyber market in such a way that, that works for them. That's further down my list of questions with you. I had Mike Millet on the show, and they said, of course, that Hudson Structures had been involved in this kind of thing. Obviously, cyber's been through quite a bit of turmoil. What's it going to take to bring stability and perhaps some more certainty to some of those long-term buyers in that market? That's a great question. And obviously, I don't... Are we nearly there? Look, so so let's just go through the history first. I think the cyber market was born in a soft P&C market where many of the solutions were based around amount of premium you charge. What we didn't really grapple with was what is the product we're selling and how does it behave? So... We all got a little bit of a shock by ransomware. Ransomware was probably contemplated, but it was, certainly wasn't seen as the major peril. And so now we've had to respond to that. So capacity's tightened up, but that's led to tightening up of wordings, increased pricing, and I think just an increased certainty of what the product now is meant to do. So that's great. So now we have more certainty. We don't have complete certainty because we haven't seen all the scenarios. We don't know how the world could blow up in cyber terms, but we have a little bit more confidence that the original risk is being controlled better. Now we can start to think about what the product should be doing going forward and how we can create even more certainty so that we can put our best foot forward with confidence. Certainly seemed, yes, it was one of those nice lines that the CEO could point to during the results, during the worst parts of the soft market and say, never mind all the other stuff, but look at this, we've got a really nice growth class of business and and this is producing good numbers, etc. But then probably was almost certainly a victim of your three eyes uh, yeah. Look, uh, at the time. Uh, yes, ex- exactly And right. I suppose the last of those eyes have definitely exited the market. Would that be right to say? It feels like that. I think it's not a class for the faint of heart. 
and I think the faint of heart have probably exited stage left and hopefully left a more professional group to, to get on with it. And now that we've retreated to that core of real cyber professionals who've invested properly in understanding this risk, given that you, you, know, you certainly got some smarts in your organization, what's your view of getting a handle on systemic risk, for example, as a reinsurer? Is it not your absolute worst nightmare? Absolutely. And, and uh, again, it's so dynamic as well. It's not like a hurricane where you know, at least you've got hundreds of years of data because this changes every time someone upgrades from Windows 10 to Windows 11. Yeah, I think that we, we need to balance up the requirements of the insureds with the capital needs of the end supporter of the risk. And we've seen far too many systemic risks in recent times. You know, we had WTC going back yep. 20 years. More recently, we've had COVID. Now we've got the Ukraine situation that's affecting multiple lines of business in ways that weren't always completely understood before they happened. And that's a real problem for the insurance and the reinsurance industry. So I think we do have to get better at clarifying the coverage that we're offering and the intent of each contract. Covering COVID within a cat cover just doesn't seem right. I think we all need to work on making sure that we're covering perils that we can anticipate, we can price for, and know how they're going to perform. Otherwise, I don't think we have a sustainable market. So you really focus on those wordings and things. I remember when Tom Bolt was asked about all this years ago, when, when we were in that real strong growth phase at Lloyd's in cyber, he said, well, as long as you can define it, absolutely, I'm quite happy. But it's when it starts getting vague that I get really worried. Absolutely. And, and look, until recently, we had, you know, I spoke about COVID within cat covers. You had cyber within cat covers. So I think Lloyd's was at the forefront of making sure that cyber was absolutely covered or absolutely excluded. And, and, and that's gone a long way to easing the pain there. You don't want to be sort of accidentally writing cyber clash. We don't want to be accidentally writing anything. <laughs> but you're optimistic that we've had a good reset. We're likely to start because... There's so much demand, one presumes that as soon as everyone is comfortable and that we can get the capital, that we can resume from very healthy growth in that class because there's so much demand from the part of buyers. You know, going back to the wording thing, as insurers and reinsurers, we've tended to offer the whole menu, sort of the all-you-can-eat buffet, when really we should just be giving people a starter, a main course, and if they really want it, a dessert as well. And if we can get back to that, I think we'll all be so much clearer. And is that clear definition going to be the key to unlocking the capital that we're going to need to meet that cyber demand? I think so. Look, the capital wants to understand that they're going to make a good return over time. I think the sensible capital will understand that there is volatility always. And in any one quarter, any one year, you can have something that goes bump in the night. But they want to understand what you're covering, the characteristics of what you're covering, and why you're going to be making money over time. If you can do that, then you will attract plenty of capital. We've been talking a lot about capital, and I suppose I should mention the sort of undisputed world heavyweight champion of capitalism, uh, Warren Buffett. Berkshire Hathaway, you've done a deal with them. Just tell us all about it. What's the nature of it and what should we people standing outside perceive from that? Yeah, look, as you say, Berkshire Hathaway is the undisputed champion of capitalism over the last 50 years. They've been extraordinary they've well. in, in, the way, in, in what they've achieved. And to have them backing us is a tremendous validation of our model and our execution. They joined forces with us right at the beginning, actually, in, in the fourth quarter of 2020. They gave us some capital to put into our Lloyd syndicate. Midterm, they actually increased that capital, and then they took an equity stake towards the end of last year. So this has been a, a relationship that's moved quickly, as happens with Berkshire Hathaway, but it's been great. 
So validation is number one. Really, the holy grail for a Lloyd syndicate, which is what we trade as, is having multi-year capital. And of course, Berkshire give us a really strong cornerstone of that multi-year capital. So it's not something we shouldn't say, oh, is it in a long-term plan that you become another of the now many multiplying divisions of Berkshire at some point in the future? Yeah, there are no plans for that. We'll we'll see how it goes. But you know, we have a wonderful relationship with them. You know, just the knowledge sharing that we both get as a result of it is um, you know, mutually very profitable. Obviously, you're involved to a degree in US casualty. What's your view on that? I mean, again, I was referring back to Mike Millett and his, his view is that US casualty is the $150 billion hurricane that's actually looking for you personally because of alternative litigation finances, $30 billion of that knocking around the system, looking for someone to sue. What's your view? Are you not as bearish as Mr. Millett? So firstly, we focus, we don't just do all things. And so in fact, we don't write any casualty, we write US professional lines. Right. So we only write a very small subset of the the longer tail lines. And we're very comfortable with what's happened in the past three and a half years, rate on rate on rate. And we think that's going to probably be ahead of trend and therefore we'll make a decent amount of money out of it. I think the slightly troubling part of it is the seeding commissions are on the high side. And you wonder, I'm never going to argue about a market, you know, it's a willing buyer and a willing seller. And we have the option of either participating or not participating on every single deal and the market as a whole. But when the seeding commissions start to go up and effectively the seeding companies are making money on their expenses at the expense of the reinsurers, you wonder how long-term viable that is. Yeah. Because why wouldn't you just invest and become an insurance company? Obviously, you can't do that immediately, but that seems a lot more attractive at the moment. So it's just something that we're watching every day. But are they justified in pure mathematical terms? They said, well, I've produced something that's definitely going to produce this massive exit profits. Give me higher seeding commission. Or would you rather it would all be in the profit commission? It should all come out that way, shouldn't it? Yeah, that, that would be preferable. But it's the laws of supply and demand. And at the moment, the seeding commissions are where they are. So short term, yes, we feel that we can make the ROEs that our capital providers need today and tomorrow. But one day soon, the rates will be coming back down. And then we need to think about what happens to the seeding commissions. Well, I suppose what goes up comes down then again. You'll well, have that's, that conversation. Uh, that's Newsonian, yes, but uh, it doesn't always happen <laughs> in the reinsurance market. Oh, well, we'll have to remind them that he who pushes for higher seeding commissions in good times will also have them squished down in hard times. And that is just life, isn't it? Absolutely. Looking at your portfolio, a really eclectic group of classes, would there be anything else that you'd be looking to add? Now you've got all the capital in place, you've got growth plans. Anything that we might expect you to be announcing or are you working on new projects and new lines? There's nothing that we're going to be announcing imminently. The biggest focus we have at the moment is on cyber because we see that as such yeah. a, a growth engine of the world's PNC and we want to do it better than anyone else. So that's really where our growth is going to come from. We have a relatively small premium base at the moment and, and we're going to try and increase that quite materially over the next year or two. Right. Really, we're much more about being focused. We want to be great at every line of business that we do. We want each line to have some sort of tailwind for us. We want to have a competitive advantage because that's how we get our capital to make some money and how we build confidence in our franchise. So if more of those start appearing, then we should expect to see you trying to play in those markets. Absolutely. Look, we're always on the lookout. What are the things that might happen? Obviously, post-Ukraine or not post, it's in the middle of Ukraine. The aviation market may or may not have some losses coming their way. And if there is some need for more capacity at the right price, who knows, that might be where we come in. Not necessarily opportunity, but when you see a real opportunity, does it have to be a sustainable opportunity? Well, some are 
temporary and some of them are permanent. But when you have a sustainable opportunity, you need also the talent that goes with it. You can't just dabble. I think it's important that you get the best people who understand the risk really well to give you a sustainable advantage over the course of time. But when the ones are opportunistic, is it okay to have just a quick two-year sort of spike and sort of in and out? Sure. Yeah, once in a while we do that, but but it's never going to be in huge scale. It's going to be you know an opportunistic type scale, but we just know that it's priced at a, a level that's probably going to be great for the next couple of years. We're into that as well. Obviously, the other thing that's been happening over time, but more prominently in the last five or six years, has been this whole sort of insure tech revolution, a huge amount of investment going in. How do you sit in that ecosystem? Obviously, you're quite high end. You've got smart people. Presumably, they're trying to access all this data. Where do you want to play in that? Are you the sort of business that wants to be building its own proprietary sort of systems and tools and models, or are you more in the market for, you know, there are plenty of other businesses that have got a great incentive to produce models they can sell to you and then just use them really well? Yeah, we're very fortunate to have people that understand tech and, you know, not least someone like a giant Kadilka who ran all of tech for Renry in the past, plus others as well in the group. So we're constantly on the lookout. So far, we've built a lot of our own tech. So we have our proprietary portfolio pricing system called ARPS, which we built 16 years ago. It's been constantly upgraded to, say, somewhere near the cutting edge. And that just gives us tremendous advantage, You know, whether it be labor-saving, just understanding our portfolio on a daily basis, et cetera. That was one example of how we built our own. The reality is that so many people are building so much different tech at the moment that I think we're going to have to be adopting other people's. We haven't got there yet. What we're trying to do, we're in a very complex, highly regulated business. We just need to make sure that we as a business are as simple as possible. We understand the processes really well, and then we can automate. What we're trying to move towards is a situation where our human beings do value-added human being work, nothing repetitive, no cutting and pasting, et cetera. So that's what we're looking at at the moment. And any way that we can make ourselves more efficient and have fewer humans doing boring things, that will put us in good stead. So you want those probably quite expensive humans doing really added value things rather than trawling through data or something? There there are so many things that we have to do every month or every quarter, whether it be regulatory filings, etc. So we're moving as much as possible to automate all of that stuff. Obviously, human beings checking and making sure that everything's right, but trying to minimize the amount of human intervention in things that don't need it. Obviously, we've had lots of automating high volume, low value business and varying degrees of success, but it seems to be that will be the way of the future. Is it right to assume you're more of a low volume, very high individual contract value business? And and so is that not really on your menu? You'd much rather, you just want to free up the time, make those underwriters have more time to do value added things, write more good business, but you're not expecting them to automate the actual underwriting. We're moving partly in that direction. A computer can run a million simulations in a few seconds and our underwriters can't. Yeah. So let's allow the algorithms to do what they're good at and allow the human beings to do what they can do better. So we do do a lot of algorithmic analysis of portfolio, but when it comes to the individual deals, so we try and build a portfolio in advance for renewal, but the humans make sure that they oversee it before they do it. So it's man and machine working in harmony. Things sort of central productivity tools something that will score your renewals and say, well, these are the really good ones. We know these are an appetite. You should probably have a look at these and get Absolutely. these out of the way first. Yeah, and so, then so. these are a bit more sort of, you know, on a traffic light system, these are all green, but those are a bit amber. They're going to need a bit more time. If you think about it, these are probably red, but have a look. There might be something good in there. Absolutely right. And of course, it's all price dependent. So sometimes the reds become greens and the greens become ambers and reds. But we do allow the computers to 
have an, an awful lot of input before the human beings get there. But we're unlikely to be seeing you know, some sort of aerialry hedge fund automatic algo trader. No, we, we aren't producing cyborg underwriters just yet. <laughs> we'll stick with the manual ones, but make sure they're really smart and really, really well informed before you waste their time. That's certainly the hope. Other things going on, obviously you're a Lloyd's business. What's your view on all the Lloyd's reforms? And obviously it's always a long story. And, and obviously we have two steps forward and one step back and sometimes three steps forward and two steps back. What's your view on all of, of, of how things are progressing? Do you think the reforms are going far and fast enough? The proof of the pudding is sometimes in the result. And certainly Lloyd's had a welcome return to profit. That just gives everyone a lot more confidence, allows everyone to breathe more easily and feel confident that they've done all the hard work in remediation because we've been through a pretty soft market and Lloyd's via Decile 10 and other measures has put us back on track again. So that's great. The current Lloyd senior management, we think are very forward thinking and we've had a lot of really fruitful discussions with them and we think they're doing a great job and we love being part of Lloyd's. So we shouldn't be expecting you to see new aerial re-platforms appearing in different places? As I say, we are absolutely committed to Lloyd's. We, we think we've got the best of both worlds. We've got Lloyd's as our platform. We've got 35 people in London, but we've also got Bermuda as well as a production zone if you like, which has proximity to the US, time zone advantages, and also cheaper from a distribution perspective. So we've got both things absolutely perfectly sorted out. And another thing, more on a personal level, as I've already mentioned, I, I keep going on about it actually, that, that Jim Stannard podcast I really enjoyed. I think it was a question I was asking him about sort of what's it like being a chairman as opposed to being a CEO. And he said he'd learned how to be a chairman and, and leave you to do the executive work and all the heavy lifting and other things. How's it working out working with someone of that reputation, just someone who's been around for so long? It's fantastic. Working with someone who really knows what it takes to be successful, just gives you the confidence that we're doing the right thing at all times. Jim is the chairman and I'm the CEO, and we talk to each other sometimes daily, sometimes multiple times a day, and occasionally not for a few weeks. But I'm always going to be asking his advice and steer on the major strategic direction because he has a very good read of the market. He understands risk probably better than just about anybody on earth. So I'd be a fool not to seek that counsel. I've come to the end of all my questions. And this is anything we've completely missed or something that suddenly occurred to you while we were talking. But I've really enjoyed talking to you. And thanks very much for your time, Ryan. No, I don't think you've missed anything. So thank you very much for your time too, Mark. Thanks good, for the invite. Good luck with all the renewals and good luck with the growth plans and everything else. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. 
Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.